Hi guys, and welcome to the first ever pint-sized art history with Danny Size. I'm Danny, and this podcast is my excuse to study art history and capture my friends to listen to me ramble anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes about some of my favorite art history moments and the ones that I can't help but share. A bit about me since this is the first ever, and so it's probably going to run a little bit longer than intended, and that's okay. So I went to school and got my Bachelor's of Art with a dual focus of studio art, digital art, and art history. I'm a digital artist that goes out and about to conventions, selling my work and doing passion projects like this when I'm not working my day job. I was captivated by art history when I was in community college and took a beginning art history course as part of my required general studies as an art major that year. The rest for me is, as they say, history. With me today is my friend Squid, who have conned into this mess with Art History Brewing's Bauhaus German-style Pilsner. Hello. I've been conned. Happily drinking. Thank you for joining me. So why don't you introduce yourself, your qualifications, why I have invited you here today. Hello, I'm Squid. I have very minimal qualifications to be here. I can drink beer very well. I do on a regular basis. Maybe I shouldn't admit that on a podcast. It's a podcast about drinking, so it's, it's fine. True. No, it's a podcast about art, but there's drinking. The first word is pints. <laughs> All right. It's a podcast about drinking and art is involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally, I've been known to write a few words. Occasionally, I've been known once upon a time to be published. Other than that, I am just here for the drinks. And the company. I guess. Yeah, you live here, so. Eh. There's no getting away from it. I wanted to start this off with a bit of a challenge. I want you to imagine yourself as an artist, but not just any artist, a fine artist. Maybe you specialize in oils, or in sculpture, or maybe in ceramics. How do you envision yourself starting to do gallery shows, and starting to get the value of your art worth more and more? Don't think a measly couple thousands. Think hundreds of thousands. Think millions of dollars. How do you become successful? What do you think that process is? Oh, well, first of all, I'm a lavish and wonderful artist. I make millions of dollars. Probably making miniature paintings of sea creatures, or maybe woodland creatures, or maybe imagined creatures, but they're all miniature, like postage stamp-sized. Intricate detail. Get out your magnifying glass. They're beautiful. And so how did you get here? How did you start selling your art? Very tiny paintbrushes were involved in the making of this art. Some glasses and magnifying glasses. Um, And then I just schmoozed my way to the top. I won't say that other things didn't happen. Maybe they did. Who knows? Gotta start somewhere. Work your way up. Yep. Exactly. So... As wonderful as that is, and I, I applaud your success... I hope you're ready to be mad alongside me, or at the very least frustrated, as we may already be. Maybe. I suppose I've accepted things as the way they are, and look forward to talking a little bit more about this. Before I can talk about what I expect will become standard, here's a bit of history first. We're going to talk about some of the greats. Always a good place to start off. We've got Picasso, we've got Da Vinci, Michelangelo. These are artists whose pathways to fame during their time was that it was a craft. Fame was based on technical skill, surviving the weathers of time, a pure physical need for their works. 
Picasso was a master at a young age, making his way into the fine art world early on, allowing him to branch out further. His works would probably be completely unrecognizable to someone who didn't know it well enough, because honestly, it doesn't look anything like the popular Picassos were shown. Then there's Da Vinci, who was an inventor as well as an artist. A majority of his works were scientific in nature, and the ones surviving today are commissioned pieces. He had rich patrons, such as the Medici family, scientists like Luca Picayo, and King Francis I. Michelangelo was also a favorite of the church, and I'd like to imagine that he'd probably be pissed as hell that those were the things that survived and that he's most well known for. But that his spite got through as well. Let me tell you, Michelangelo hated working for the church, and I'll get into that in another episode. But regardless, for him, it was the trade of it all and the need of the church to educate the illiterate masses that brought him money, work, and eventual fame. If we keep going through time, we can mention Frida Kahlo, Salvador Dali, Andy Warhol. Their work and fame didn't come by trade or necessity, so much as by a cultural shift. Kahlo was a socialite in some ways and an activist, but only when she wanted to be. Her story was told through her paintings, and she was effectively an autobiographical storyteller first and a painter second. Her art became popular near the end of her life. Her husband was also a well-known commission-based artist, so she had a connection to the functionality there as well, even if she didn't participate much in it. Dolly was a man of cultural revolution. He came from the chain-smoking savants when artists were practically a social caste themselves. His art was popular, but so was his persona, at times less famous and more infamous. He was involved in a cultural shift and change where art was in this flux of function and cultural use. These artists were gritty and among the people and weren't looking to please those around them. Warhol was the same. He was involved in an alternative scenes of the time, queer communities, drags, and commenting on consumerism. Time led them to museums and galleries and even magazine covers. There were boundary crossing in this period, from strictly the art world to social and popular one as well. Slowly, it went from a functional trade surviving off commissions or functioning off commission based in social demand to a socio-political movement. Artists still deeply involved with the lower classes and the struggles of those below the elites to what we know it today. There began to start having this deep rift between the fine art community and popular culture as well as accessibility to the arts. Can you guess where I'm going with this? The future. I mean, that is how time moves. <laughs> But I'm talking commodification. Ah, yes. Capitalism? Yes. Oh, no. Much like this sponsor. I'm kidding. Clearly. We don't have sponsors. Maybe someday. But if you much... want to sponsor us, beer. Yeah. Art history brewing. Come at me. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll have sponsors. And much like the artists we're going to talk about, it's either going to be through luck or enough viewers to make ourselves irresistible. Mm. Yep. So before I really get into the grit of this and make people angry and not in the same way I am, I just want to say that a lot of this will be my own analysis, opinions, and views. I'll have references and resources for the history I gather and mention. But the conclusions and speculations are my own. Hopefully by the end of this, you'll see how I got there. I preface this in a way, too, because I know this can make some fine artists upset and some art historians as well. And that's okay. I'm only judging a little bit. A healthy amount, I hope. I love art, and I love art history, but what I don't love is fine art world at large as it is today. There's a lot wrong with it, and you'll find a reoccurring theme of sorts in this episode, but also will probably crop up in several others that we talk about. Now what I'm going to do is break down sort of what the artists I mentioned were worth when they died, versus what they were worth now after time, or what some of their earth was sold for in the past and worth for now, adjusting for inflation, that sort of thing. Because some money was made. <laughs> 
So with Michelangelo, he left an estate of about $35 million. And Da Vinci was hard to figure out, but he lived comfortably. He gave money to the poor. And one thing I saw said he would have been about an annual salary of about $75,000. And that he could have made more if he was better at finishing his work for the people who paid him for it. So, you know, he made commissions, but, you know, he didn't like to finish them very much. So that's fine. Picasso was worth around $530 million to $1.3 billion at his death, with about 16,000 paintings left behind. Now, I couldn't find out how much of his paintings were worth, but I was able to find an average selling price with a high being about a million dollars. Frida Kahlo's art started to be shown in galleries, and she started gaining commissions near the end of her life. She was commissioned by the Mexican government at one point, as well as private commissions, but Kahlo ultimately preferred painting for herself. Her career really began to take off right before she died. Now, her highest selling work, a self-portrait called Roots, sold for $5.62 million in 2006. Dolly sold his most popular painting, The Persistence of Memory, in 1931 for $4,283 in modern money, but it sold for $550 million in 2017. Dolly made enough money, though, throughout his life to buy multiple homes and combine them into a lavish estate, like this man lived. Andy Warhol had a net worth of equal to about $220 million at the time of his death, but in 2013, a single painting, Silver Car Crash, Double Disaster, sold for $105.4 million alone. So artists in this time are more like bohemians than those before them. They're cultural figures and commentators more than they are craftsmen in the same way that da Vinci and Michelangelo were. Picasso moved between the two areas and at that time led sort of into the next sect of well-known artists such as Kahlo, Dali, and Warhol. Presently, though, in current times, that has changed. Art in the fine art community has shifted in terms of value and how the value has come along. I remember learning about this in school and it entirely pissed me off. I couldn't quite help it, and I get where it's all coming from because money is fake and markets, particularly based on estimated values with no concrete worth like gold might have, gets a bit convoluted. So I'd like to have you take a guess at how this all goes on and how a fine artist right now might make their way into fame within their lifetime. Um, can I bring back sleeping your way to the top? Sure. For a thousand. <laughs> we'll take it. Sleeping your way to the top for a thousand. And... I did mention luck, and you'd have to be lucky to meet the right per kind of person and get them lucky to start sleeping your way to the top. An illegal art dealer. An illegal art dealer. Maybe a legal art dealer. A legal and a legal art dealer. Both. Just go through both venues. True. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you want to... Best way to get a buck. Mm -hmm. Illegally. Illegally or legally. Mm -hmm. Cover all your bases. Exactly. No? Am I wrong? I'm just thinking, I'm like, cover all your bases. I'm sure there's a get to third base joke there. There is, but I wasn't going to make it. That's fair. Um, but luck, like I said, and it's a big part of it is luck. Meeting the right people, being in the right places. There's a lot that comes from creating a famous fine artist. And I say create because right now it's oftentimes not a singular work of the artist that makes this person famous. Becoming a famous artist is a struggle, and we can't discount the work that the artist puts in for networking and making the system that they develop that works for them. But we're gonna break down and explain the system with a little bit of a story. So we're gonna tell the tale of a few different artists here based on real artists that I may bring up later in this podcast in their own episodes. But for now, we're gonna keep it loose and give a touch of whimsy so I don't have to do as much in-depth research here to get my point across. I don't feel like getting in debates over the histories of people so that I'm going to talk about later. So we'll get there eventually. 
Let's start with the youths, the modern child protege. We've heard these stories before. A child has amazing talent. The colors are vibrant, the work is deep, and the prices are high. So imagine this, you're a child. It shouldn't be too difficult. At one point, we were all children. What type of art were you making as a kid? Before my miniature career took off? Mm-hmm. Mm. Probably bigger pieces. Yeah. Then I honed my craft, you know, really like mm -hmm. narrowed it down, so to speak. Yeah. What were your subjects as a child? Um, I'm going to go back to uh, ocean creatures for a hundred. Yeah. Were you drawing dolphins? No, we don't care about dolphins. Sharks, probably. Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit on the nose, but squids. Yeah. Um, stingrays are super cool. Mm -hmm. Love me a good manta ray or sea turtle. We're using Crayola. Potentially. It's why I couldn't do miniatures. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very difficult to get a fine point on those crayons. We've all tried. Yeah, you gotta develop those fine motor skills. Get those eyelash paintbrushes. Have you ever gotten your Crayola crayon to a fine tip? I think not. <laughs> the sharpener don't work like that. <laughs> That's true. So, like, kids will be kids. We all know what a kid's drawing looks like, and they're ridiculous. So you're there, you're drawing your stuff, you're drawing your squids, you're using your Crayolas, and your parents think it's amazing, because they're your parents. Social media really has made a market for child protégés in our current climate. They post and they post and they make prints and your parents make GoFundMes. And suddenly there's news articles. Other people start drumming you up and up and up and suddenly, bam, you're a shooting star and your works are selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars and you can't even remember how the hell the letter K looks. A bunch of luck that really expands from there. You've got a few factors. One, kids are adorable most of the time. You've got a kid who's using a lot of colors or the opposite, so few colors. They're using the full canvas so the pieces look complete because a lot of the times kids will leave blank spaces and you're like, aha, that's a child. But if they use all of the space, you're like, ooh, that's an artist. You have a fine art community that has so many styles that reasonably you can drop that child's work into one of them. And you have a kid churning out art constantly because at that point they love making art. That's why they're covering stuff with it. They ain't got no job. Right. They don't got a job. Their parents are letting them throw paint in the bathroom. They got no responsibilities. Their parents are letting them use the hair dryer to melt shit and try things and stick twigs and things in it. They're experimenting because they're children. And we haven't beaten that out of them yet. We do not condone beating children. No, I just meant emotionally and through the systematic process of, <laughs> of going to school and them telling you you can't color a dog blue. Um, but does the kid understand what they're doing? No. Not really. But everyone around them is assigning this piece, the work and the maturity behind it. It's definitely art. Don't get me wrong. Kids have a ton of strong emotions and art therapy is fantastic for them to translate their feelings and expression through creativity before we squeeze the freedom of thought out of them. But we're going to see their work sold in the long run. Historically, no. Their work isn't going to continue to sell. This celebrity and cost is drummed up by society and just this mass of, oh my gosh, look at this kid producing work. It's so cute. <gasps> novelty. Yeah, exactly. It's novelty. You've got luck. You've got quantity, popularity that leads it into the fine art world where their families are getting gallery spaces for them. It's like you said, it's novelty. People are excited to go see it. So in the next scenario, you've got a BFA student. Say you're working and you're working and you're working and you've got student galleries going on and you're going to a good college and at least one that rich people live around and is culturally significant to the area with a fine arts presence. 
What this means is there are scouts. Maybe not formal scouts, kind of like sports scouts, but you've got fine art scouts. Because everyone wants to be the person that has an early artist's work in their attic when they find out they're famous years later. If you're an artist, you know what I mean. Your aunt or boss or friend or stranger that says, at one point, when you've doodled something or given them art, sign it. That way they know it's yours when you're famous. And I can make money off of it. Who's they? It's the fine arts world, my dudes. So you've got your gallery. It's in the basement of your college. Or maybe you've traveled to a state conference. Looking at you, Kaka, which stands for California Ceramic Arts Conference or something like that. Or maybe you've got your capstone show. Little do you know, there's a scout there taking a look over all these young and up-and-coming artists, keeping an eye out for the next best thing. These people are looking to discover the next biggest person, and they know one another, because of course they do. I'm not a part of the social class, because I'm broke as shit, and I missed my shot when I didn't know how to price my own art when I got asked about it. But these scouts will buy what they see promise in from an unknown artist. They'll hold on to these, they'll watch the person's career, how they do this, I'm not entirely sure. Like I said, I don't have the money to be within these circles, and I don't hold the social status otherwise, but I imagine it's a bit like a secret society. That is Solomon, our second host. He's here to make paintings on small canvases by sticking his paws into ink. He is the next greatest artist. Um, One person buys an unknown artist's work after seeing it, seeing the promise and maybe even talking a bit with them, seeing what their goals are, etc. They keep an eye on their career. Other scouts either buy this up or find out that someone who has an eye for this sort of thing has started to buy their work. An artist starts pricing their work higher, starts building a CV that has things like sold to a private collection for lots of money, that's a technical term, and gets more gallery shows. In this way, it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, in hopes of buying a soon-to-be blossoming artist's work when it's cheap. It begins to raise the prices and, in turn, raise the prestige of the artist. It gives them entry into bigger and bigger areas of the art world based on the presumptions and assessments of these initial buyers. So in this case, you have luck and you have skill. I still think that luck has a lot to do with it. There's a reason that there's the phrase starving artist. You get someone in rural eastern Oregon in the middle of a food desert and a literal desert creating beautiful work. Their chances of getting these in front of people who could further their career is so low. Meanwhile, you have someone who grows up in a large city, goes into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to go to college, has a much bigger shot as a person who's got their parents helping pay for it, who flew across the country to go to the same college. It's not a single line in the case of this, but like the butterfly effect of situations that inspire one another, that you never know which will be the flap to cause a hurricane 12 counties over, or if nothing happens at all. So you can see my frustration, along with the frustration of artists who are working to create these names for themselves. Since we moved from art being a craft that was culturally required, mostly by the church, into a luxury, the production and means of success change. This is particularly true in the fine art world, which is what I'd like to remind everyone is what I'm talking about. This involves gallery shows, private collections, museums, touring exhibitions, and the like. Most people enjoy fine art in a re- reproductive sense. We can get copies of the Mona Lisa for our houses or copies of Monet's water lilies for our office. We can get those things printed on whatever we like because copyright has run out. You can't get a reproduction or a print of a current artist without paying a large sum of money for a limited edition print because the next part of the fine art world equation is scarcity. I know you've bought things that are limited edition from artists that shows and stuff. For sure. Yeah. I'm one of a kind sometimes. Mm-hmm. And and cost-wise, what's the difference there between buying just a general print? 
uh, between a general print and something that I have commissioned is usually for small pieces, at least 40 or $50. Mm-hmm. And that's for a sketch sometimes. Right. But there's like a difference in cost there. Yeah, like for sure. A markup of about double. Yeah. We are talking double, if not almost triple the price of a mass market one. Right. Because scarcity. That's for for simple stuff. Right. Because scarcity increases cost. Supply and demand. Yeah. Yay, capitalism. Oh, yeah. Oftentimes now, you'll see one way artists start to break their way into the fine art world, and in turn, a small taste of those prices is getting prints and reproductions, and the way that artists control their work and hold their value is through, like we said, that's scarcity. It doubles the price or more. So the child protege or the college-blooming artist could start selling their originals for larger sums of money, but then they could get prints made. These are made in many ways, but oftentimes it comes down to the quality of the materials used to print, the quality of the photos or scans taken for reproduction, and then the limited printed qualities. This is where you see series being made, and an artist will oftentimes sign a certificate that the reproduction or print you're buying is only one of 300 or 25 or some other number. And this allows them to move between what might be considered highbrow or lowbrow art means of production or distribution. For an artist who is typically considered lowbrow, which is complicated, and again, we'll get into that another day, but basically they're not recognized within the fine art world as fine art. This process can elevate their work and in turn, turn their pieces into higher priced items. But an artist who is considered highbrow, so fine art, and recognized within the community, this is used as an additional income source without dropping scarcity of their art through mass production. How does this all make you feel? Yay, capitalism. Oh, yeah. For me, for money, I would rather be an artist working as a craftsman rather than working in the current fine art climate. Which is why I've dedicated myself to be a small business owner or lowbrow artist, depending on how you view it. Would I love to be painting oil portraits all the time? Sure. But my luck in that area was not that high. Part of it really comes down less to skill and more to the current art climate and styles. Whatever is in trend, and we have scouts like those buying work, they could be seen as popular in the future in a way. And they create what's popular. I am really curious to see how the fine art community and movements will be seen in a hundred years. I could go on for a long time about the development of movements, and at one point I will, but a lot of the time we don't see a movement happening until we look back on it, and it's because the work was different from what was popular at the time. This is why we don't see a lot of household names of artists that are still alive. The fame comes after death, and the fortune? That's determined by the players of the fine art world at the time. You can be a wonderful artist with technical skills and ideas behind it and barely make ends meet because the world doesn't align right. I think often of my former art history teacher, Kenny Mencher, who I'm mentioning by name because he's selling his work online and it's moved from an educator role to a strictly artist now because he's starting to find success after he shifted from chasing the value and payments from the fine art world and moved to the general and social population. I really love his work and how it looks, and I think he's a great example of how a career modern artist can create interesting and well-done pieces, but not find the success of those who technically and conceptually they can relate to in a fine art world. Even then... More people have seen his art than they realize. He actually sold a piece or more, I can't remember, to the set designer of Mad Men. I don't watch the show, so if anyone who does and listens to this ends up looking at Kenny's work and can spot it, send me screenshot, please, because I would love to see it in there. 
I don't know that I can manage my way through the whole show as the world stands right now. I'm saving all my emotional energy to rant about art and write and draw whatever the hell I want because it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things of fine art anyways. But who knows? Maybe I'll go big after I die since I missed out on the child protege part when my coloring won me that giant box of Disney cutlery from the local bank when I was seven. <laughs> it didn't get me involved in the fine art world though. I just got a lot of cups. <laughs> it was great. My mom and dad should have marketed me way more after that. But I think this is where we'll wrap it up. Uh, this was more of a simple overview and a down and dirty rundown of everything, but I think it gives a good idea of how we sort of create modern popular artists and how it's worked historically. There's a lot more that goes on with class discrepancy, what can be called art, the availability, society's understanding of culture, and the discourse surrounding art. These are all things that I really hope to get into in the future, so keep coming back for part two on this, which will probably happen at some point. And will be really good and fun and not frustrating at all about how you become famous creating things that people put arbitrary values on. So thanks again for joining me, Squid. Is there anything you want to say or anything you want to promote before we, we wrap ourselves up and you go to sleep at 10 o'clock in the morning? Uh, I promote this beer. It was very good. Art History Brewing, <laughs> aptly named for this podcast. Yes, this one's Bauhaus and it has a picture in of the Bauhaus I should know the name of it but I don't but the architectural and artist style beautiful thank you I'm an art historian um, I also promote arbitrary numbers for things uh, just go out there and make up your own numbers just go in the shops and tell people how much you're gonna pay my favorite number is violet seven great Go in the shops and don't pay a penny over. Money is arbitrary and so are numbers. Mm -hmm. Chaos is king. Until next time! Hey, I just wanted to thank you so much for listening to my pilot episode. It was a little rough there in the beginning and in the middle and probably at the end, but I appreciate the time you took. You can follow me at Pint Sized Pod on Twitter or email me at pintsizedarthistory at gmail.com. Until then, enjoy this drunk outtake. Which is why I've just... Which is why I've just kept... <laughs> Good. I haven't had breakfast yet and I'm drinking. Good morning. Good morning.